Before we get started, I have a couple announcements. First, we're expanding our podcasting platform to include blog posts with resources that can serve the needs of our community during this troubling time. These will include YouTube videos of interviews and seminars by Jungian therapists, as well as other resources that meet the need for personal transformation and social renewal. The Jungian Anthology podcast is now Jungian Anthology, a podcast and blog by the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. You will be able to search both podcast and blog posts by topic, speaker, format, or any other keyword, including COVID-19, which we have a few posts already. To access the blog, just go to youngchicago.org slash blog. Also, during this difficult time, while we all practice social distancing, we want you to be able to stay connected to the Institute, Jungian ideas, and your own individuation process. Use the coupon code CONNECT for 40% off everything in our store through April 30th. Enter the code CONNECT on the cart page before checkout. This discount is in addition to any other discounts you may already receive for being a member or candidate in analytic training. Podcast, Analytical Psychology Seminars from the Archives of the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Death Panels, Our Cultural Complex Around Death, with Dan Ross, RNPMHNP. In recognition of the current COVID-19 pandemic and the crisis affecting our healthcare system, we're sharing a recent seminar by Dan Ross, Death Panels, Our Cultural Complex Around Death, in its entirety. This seminar was part of our public program series this year and was recorded on February 28th. The spirit of the times shapes our heroic attitude toward disease and death. Instead of the initiatory experience that fear of death can provide, we are paralyzed in our fear and cling to images of immortality found in modern medical institutions. The Affordable Care Act's provision of reimbursing medical practitioners for having end-of-life discussions with patients with life-limiting illnesses constellated a collective panic. The cultural complex distorted these simple end-of-life discussions, brilliantly discussed in the best-selling book by Atul Gawande, Being Mortal, into what were called death panels. The fear was that a group of professionals would sit around and decide whether we should live or die. What was behind this cultural complex? When we are forced to engage with the healthcare industry through illness, we are carried along a hero's journey to treat death as the ultimate evil. And in the process, we miss the transformative opportunities an encounter with death can provide. How did modern medicine come to carry for us the image of immortality? In this program, we will use myth, literature, and film to explore the spirit of the depths to better understand the archetypal underpinnings of modern medicine's relationship to death and immortality. 
The PowerPoint slides for this talk will be available through a link in the show notes. Dan Ross, RN, PMHNP, MSN, MBA, has been a nurse for 40 years. He has worked extensively as Director of Clinical Services in the field of home health care and hospice. As a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner, he brings both a medical and psychiatric experience to his work. He currently works part-time in the field of palliative care and hospice as a nurse practitioner, visiting patients in their home or nursing facility, helping them in their transition to hospice. He is also a Jungian analyst in private practice in downtown Chicago. You're all brave, coming to a, uh, a program that has a title with the word death in it, is always very challenging. In my experience um, teaching over the years, I know um, uh, that's, that can be quite a turnoff. So, um, and if you are excited about it, that's great. Um, so as Lynn said, um, I am currently, uh, I have a psychiatric uh, analytic practice in which I see uh, people of various ages, um, but I also see um, two days a week, I see patients in palliative care. Um, uh, anybody here with hospice or palliative care experience or currently working in that field? Okay. Um, so what I'm going to present today uh, has been an accumulation of um, knowledge uh, awareness, consciousness over the last, my whole career. Um, I had gotten, um, I'd become interested in dealing with death uh, even before I, before I became a nurse, experiencing my own uh, possible death uh, or near-death experience. And so when I became a nurse um, working in uh, medicine, primarily in the VA, Heinz VA, um, I gravitated towards taking care of patients in oncology. Um, and at that time, that was the early 80s, um, the patients were coming in for kind of end-stage, last-ditch efforts uh, for chemotherapy protocols, and they were ending up dying. I would have uh, two or three patients dying on my unit a week. So my, ex my confrontation with that, and these were patients where we wouldn't be talking about hospice. Uh, those are in the early days where you just it just wasn't commonplace. There was no hospice really to send them to. Uh, it was just it was just not part of the discussion. So that had a profound effect on me. So later on in years, and as I kind of worked in various um, hospices and various levels of hospice, both in administration and clinical, um, I began developing trainings. Um, training primarily hospice staff around around this. And one of the things I noticed um, over, over the last 10 years, um, two things occurred uh, that I think we're going to unpack today. Uh, first was that even hospice was becoming so constricted because the expectation by Medicare was that we had to prove patients were dying. And if you work in hospice, you know what I'm talking about. We have to document uh, evidence of the patient's decline, otherwise they might not show eligibility for the program and you might not get paid. And I was beginning to, I, I knew that that had a, 
a very uh, oppressive effect on staff, um, on their clinical experience, but I didn't know in what way. And through my um, clinical training here at the Institute, through the CTP, and then my analytic training, I began to realize the archetypal underpinnings of our experience that we were fighting, uh, the system, the medical system, and the this dual system between what I call the medical model and the hospice model, we in many ways work against the archetype, the archetypal energies, uh, which we know from Jung um, was really um, deadly and potentially very dangerous. Uh, so I'm going to unpack those. Uh, I use the title "Death Panels." Oh, so let, let me let me just finish as I developed a training that includes much of the stuff I'm presenting you today, um, presenting it to hospice staff uh, in many different hospices over a two-year period of time, what I realized was that what I was offering them was like food (laughs) Um, because they had become so oppressed and depressed because of the systems that, that I described before that this expanded uh, their experience of hospice, and rejuvenated them and refreshed them. And I, I, it was quite a, a surprising and profound experience just, just doing that. Um, uh, I'm going to be using a film today called Wit, W-I-T. Have anybody seen, any of you seen that? Okay, good. Um, and I'm going to be using it to, to keep us grounded, first of all, in a patient's story uh, in the movie uh, and to keep us grounded in our emotions because uh, a lot of this can get can get quite heady and that would be a disservice to the material that we're uh, trying to discuss. I also include um, time for discussion, plenty of time for discussion and we're going to take a break every hour for five to ten minutes so you can stand and talk or talk or, or whatever. So that's my goal and I'll try and keep us uh, on track regarding that. Um, death panels, do you remember when death panels came up around the Affordable Care Act? Do you remember that? Um, uh, the, uh, when the Affordable Care Act came out, there was a very interesting provision that said uh, that medical practitioners could be reimbursed for having end-of-life discussions with patients when appropriate, when it's appropriate. And, uh, and that's what I do. <laughs> uh, when I am called to see a patient in palliative care, it's a patient that's been, that, that may not be ready for hospice, may not be psychologically ready for hospice, but they're in this in-between stage because they've been told in some form or fashion that medical, uh, the medical model has nothing more to offer them. Um, so here we go and, and have this conversation. Uh, so we're going to be unpacking what that conversation is and what the medical practitioner brings to it, what does the patient bring to it, um, and all the, uh, or the, what I've identified as the archetypal underpinnings of that experience, uh, which I think is taken for, taken for granted. Uh, death panels is, uh, for me, the um, cultural reflected or expressed the cultural complex that we have around death. Um, and I've, my attitude towards it has changed. My first reaction to it was I was angry because here we have uh, practitioners such as myself that are trying to have meaningful discussions with patients and families 
that have an unpredictable time period. You know, doctors have 15 minutes <laughs> with, with patients. So this offered them the opportunity to be reimbursed for a longer period of time to have a more meaningful discussion on this subject, and, um, and it was shot down. It was, it was taken out because of the controversy. But I've come around to understand uh, better what their complex was about. Now, I'll get into it as, as we talk through this. Now, uh, one, of the, one of the things that was really interesting to me has always been a question for me that has been dealt with in, in the Jungian literature a couple of times, but it was the idea that um, does death and dying, uh, does that have an impact on individuation, uh, Jung's idea of individuation? And I began to believe that it did, and it spurred on individuation. It had a profound effect on it. Um, and that, that was um, corroborated uh, with two Jungian uh, analysts and writers, Joyce Chevrine, uh, who wrote a book on The Dying Patient in Psychotherapy. It's a wonderful book. It's about one patient, and uh, it's about her experience. And also Jane Wheelwright's Death of a Woman. Um, and both of them agreed that death has a particular death and dying has a particular effect on uh, the individuation process. There's no easy way I can tell you this, so I'm sending you to someone who can. <laughs> um, this is um, this is actually very truthful because I think that's people's experience when they go to see a doctor, and I think there's a lot of unfortunateness to the fact that now we have um, this split in the healthcare system, uh, one of which uh, that I call the medical model has all kinds of characteristics associated with it, including a heroic attitude that's kind of built into to that system. Uh, and then you have this now hospice palliative care model in which their doctors are uh, certified in palliative medicine. So what we've managed to do is basically tell uh, uh, medical practitioners that are taking care of patients, perhaps in specialties, that they're no longer capable of taking care of dying patients because we have people that are specialized in that. Mm -hmm. And so right at the, the, the most uh, vulnerable moment in which a patient has developed a, an important relationship, trusting relationship with one physician, they have to give that physician up for uh, hospice or palliative care or, or whatever. Um, it doesn't have to be, but that's often the case. So uh, what we're going to talk about today is what goes into this conversation uh, and how did it evolve that um, this, this is the case, that this physician uh, has to pass this patient on to somebody else. So what are the psychological ramifications of that? Uh, this is the quote from a um, paper called Dying in America. It was published in 2015, um, and it was put out by the Institute of Medicine, and what it was looking at was all the different problems that hospice and palliative care were facing, uh, and it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, and it starts out, this is the very beginning of it, addressing uh, the death panels. Um, and it says, witness the impact of unfortunate 
although purposeful, choice of words, death panels during the heated debate surrounding the passage of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act of 2009. Those two words conveyed that the individual choice in how one faces death and dying could be supplanted by a distant, uncaring bureaucracy. Um, and I think that was the fantasy that people were responding to. So, um, for, for those of you who haven't seen the movie Wit, uh, this very first scene is very, very important. A lot happens in it. We're going to spend some time kind of unpacking it. Um, it is the, it, the uh, chief oncologist at this medical center uh, that's, that's uh, university-based is played by Christopher Lloyd. Um, his name is Kalikian, uh, and um, Emma Thompson plays the woman, 50-year-old woman, who is a professor of English literature at the same university um, that is diagnosed with advanced ovarian cancer. And how this discussion, how this first he's first introducing her terminal terminality to her, how this plays out, I think is very interesting. Um, and what's not talked about. So think about all the different elements that are playing in this one scene. Uh, and this kind of allows us to, the, to di dive into what this story is going to be about and what's going to play out after this. Yes. 
better not teach next semester. After the question. The first week of each cycle, you'll be hospitalized for chemotherapy. The next week, you may feel a little tired. The next two weeks will be fine, relatively. Is it eight months like that? This treatment is the strongest thing we have to offer you. And as research, it will make a significant contribution to our knowledge. Knowledge. Yes. Here is the informed consent form. Should you agree, you sign there at the bottom. a very interesting scene, isn't it? Um, it tells us something about each of the characters. Um, what, what did you discover? What, what do you suspect is going on here? This is not a usual um, uh, discovery of diagnosis discussion that normally goes on. These are two very unique people. But what did you notice? First of all, Kalikian, what does that conjure up for you? Kavorkian. Yeah. Why Kavorkian? Why did Margaret Edson wrote wrote the play? Um, and it's a it's a wonderful, deep, beautiful play, and I think to my knowledge it's the only thing she wrote, so that's very interesting. But she everything she put in here was very deliberate. Why would she conjure up Kavorkian? Or why might she? Yeah, yeah. There was no, uh, there was no options yeah. given. It, 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 she, he didn't talk about what it might look like if she didn't pursue treatment. Mm-hmm. So there's a one-sidedness, okay? There's a one-sidedness to the medical model, and this is portrayed here in the in the character of Kalikian. Also, the just the name conjures up a, some type of mythological hero. Uh, there's a he's a heroic attitude in this that. Um, that he's taking on this heroic role that he's going to try and save her. There's also a seduction going on here. Isn't there? You notice that? What is that seduction? Well, she's not asking any questions. It's like she's just kind of sucked in Mm -hmm. from from the very beginning. And also what I was wondering about, too, um, I think the very great possibility, even though she's a Ph.D., just being totally overwhelmed, mm-hmm. you know, by these terms, and what is she thinking internally? Yes. In response to yes. all this medical terminology that's being offered her. Yes. Yeah, and he doesn't open up any space to allow her to talk about how she's reacting to what he's saying. Um, there's a bit of competition going on in this scene, isn't there? Uh, she knows language. 
he assumes that the, the word insidious is simply a medical term, and it's a common medical term uh, to describe certain types of diseases that can go on, uh, particularly like cancers, they can go on unnoticed uh, for quite a while, which is a common medical term they use, they use there. She uses the term uh, literally uh, and what it means. Um, so there's a bit of a challenge to the patriarchy here, that she is um, a strong woman. Um, but I think the seduction has something to do when he says um, uh, two things. A contribution to knowledge, which she picked up on. Uh, she's a researcher. Uh, she finds knowledge valuable. She is if you haven't seen the movie, she is a professor of English literature that specializes in the poetry of John Donne. Uh, and, the, and that poetry becomes very relevant to her journey and the, and the story that uh, we're telling today. Um, and um, <clears throat> the second seduction is when she said, when he asked her if she could be very tough, right? And she said, "I won't. I, uh, I won't. I won't you disappoint. You don't have to worry about that." So, this tells us something about about these two. Um, what is a? What is? And I'll ask this question, realizing that the rest of the talk is going to unpack it. But what does a patient bring to this type of conversation? And what does Kalikian bring to their conversation? Well, Kalikian is bringing up death, right? He didn't have to say death. He just had to say, um, I don't know if he even uses the word terminal, just the word cancer. Uh, although cancer nowadays is pretty chronic. Um, if you look at all the different types of cancer and all the available treatments, but the word itself is still conjures up images of death and, and, and evokes death anxiety, right? Um, and fourth stage. And yeah, fourth stage. Yeah. Um, but n whatever her emotional affective response was to what he was talking about. We we can only we can only guess, but uh, um, Vivian uh, and we didn't talk about Vivian Bering and her, and the meaning of her name. But Vivian will throughout this and as she did as the character did in the play would speak to the audience. So in here she'll pre speak to the camera, and she'll be telling us what she's thinking and feeling, um, even if she doesn't share that with. The medical practitioners around her. Vivian Baring, what does that conjure up? The name? This load that she is carrying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Yeah, but she is carrying a load. What else does Baring? Giving birth, right? Giving birth to something. Vivian means life. Okay. Okay, so this one-sidedness in clicking is very important um, because what does Jung teach us about one-sided one -sided conscious attitude? Um, 
conscious attitude that's one-sided constellates the opposite in the unconscious. Okay? Now that is either in an individual state, uh, level or a collective level. There's a one-sidedness here that's going to require compensation, and the compensation comes throughout the story here. Um, for our culture, uh, hospice for a time became compensatory to this one-sided attitude, and I would propose that if hospice didn't emerge, something like it would have to have emerged to compensate for what was happening in the, in the, the evolution of medicine, which I'll talk about. Um, one of the, one of the uh, early uh, uh, writers that I read which I no longer recommend uh, to people because I often have people call me up later and say that they scared the shit out of me. <laughs> um, and uh, so I have to be uh, sensitive about that. But uh, denial of death, how many of you have boldly taken that on? Okay. It's a, it's a very uh, dense book. Ernest Becker uh, spent his career uh, studying early uh, psychoanalyst writings. Uh, I don't think he spent enough time with Jung's, if he'd studied Jung's, but he definitely uh, studied the uh, the uh, Freudians, and it um, came up with something very, very powerful and important. Uh, this is what this is one of the things that, that comes out of the book that really caught my attention, and it was his identification that heroism is the um, uh, compensation for death anxiety. The heroic attitude uh, is connected to our fear of annihilation. Heroism is first and foremost a reflex of the terror of death. And here he says, the problem of heroics is the central one of human life, that it goes deeper into human nature than anything else because it is based on an organismic narcissism and a child's need for self-esteem as, as the condition for his life. So what he came up with was this idea of mortality salience as death anxiety that is largely unconscious, unless we happen to see an accident on the highway as we're driving by, then our own anxiety may, or we see something on TV around death. Um, and that when that is activated, uh, we compensate, our, our self-esteem is affected. So you see from the the diagram here, there's an inverse relationship between mortality, salience, and self-esteem. So our self-esteem is diminished when we experience that, and our first reaction is to try and raise our self-esteem. So a good collective example of that is 911. Uh, if you remember what happened or where you were or what you were doing on that day, that morning, um, recall what you might have done immediately after. Do you remember? What you did? You're too young? No, I went to school. Oh, you did go to school. Okay. How old were you? I think I was in Okay. Wow, wow. So they made you go to school? Yeah. Chicago. Okay. Did you, did you have a sense of what was going on? Um, in fifth grade? Our teachers had like a meeting with all of the students. Okay. And they told us kind of what was happening and asked questions. Okay. Were you afraid? I wasn't. 
Okay, so you were you were shielded uh, somewhat from that. Good. Uh, what? How about some of the older people in the crowd? What was your experience? Yeah. Well, I was teaching at the time, and I had uh, the students bring in pictures of how they felt or what they've seen that disturbed them, or anything they wanted to bring in visual that went all around the room. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. What's your first response? Anybody? I, I, as I've been, when I was teaching for my the hospice company I worked for, um, I would often ask this question of of the group, and um, I would hear all kinds of things like um, I uh, called my loved ones, or tried to, I went to a church uh, or a synagogue or a place of meeting people, or if I. My company, I was in St. Louis, I think, at the time. There were people in the field because their staff saw patients in their homes, and uh, they felt compelled to come back, at least to the agency, to to gather. So they were looking for uh, to be with people. Um, so all of that, if you really think about what your reaction was, um, had was a response to try and... Build, rebuild your sense of self-esteem. Now, Becker uses the term self-esteem uh, not in the colloquial sense, but in the sense of we're trying to build up our sense of immortality because we all have a fantasy of immortality, don't we? I mean, we wake up every day uh, actually imagining we're not going to die when, when you know, the reality is, yeah, one of these days it's, we're going to die. But we don't think about that. We imagine that we're going to survive that. In this day and age, it's a lot easier to because medical science has moved the longevity curve from uh, 100 years or 150 years, average age was 40, up to uh, 70, 79, I think it is now. So, so that reality has really changed things for us in terms of our relationship uh, to death. Um, but all of us tried in some way to, to elevate our, to restore a sense of, of uh, that sense of safety and security and so forth, right? And the country did it on a, on a larger scale. The government um, put some, this warning system in place. They started a homeland security. They, they did several things to rebuild our collective sense of self-esteem. Um, and we eventually went to war. Um, so Again, this is a natural response. The problem with Becker's work, which I think has uh, a depressing effect on, on people, and if, you, if you read it, uh, and this is, this is true of the Freudian uh, perspective on the unconscious, is that there is, um, there is just this. <laughs> there is just this kind of uh, reaction to death uh, and death anxiety, and that is pervasive throughout our culture. So, actually, three researchers by the name of uh, Solomon Greenberg and Pazinski, uh, all in different teaching universities, uh, all different backgrounds. I think uh, professor of sociology, professor of psychology, and, and I forget what the other, other one was, all in the same field. They found each other because their interest in it was in Becker, and so they took Becker's theory and they turned it into science. And for the last 30 years, they've been doing scientific experiments in which they were trying to show 
that death anxiety, once once activated in a person, is going to affect their day-to-day judgment. And they proved that quite successfully, uh, and they put it all in a book called the... Um, what's the... What's the book? The Worm at the Core. Great book. The Worm worm at the Core. It's the culmination of 30 years of research that they did. And they did some very interesting things. The first uh, experiment they did, uh, what they had to do to to make it a a scientific study, they had to have a control group and an experimental group. And they had to find a way to activate one's mortality salience without them knowing. <laughs> so what they did was they, they gave uh, these two groups, uh, control and experiment group, uh, a questionnaire. Um, they, uh, they each got the questionnaire, but something in the questionnaire uh, activated uh, based on the questionnaire. They were all identical except for one item in which death was conjured up. And then, and this was a group of judges then they gave the judges a uh, case of a woman who was being brought in for prostitution, and they uh, asked them to assign bail to this person. All the same case. Uh, The experimental group, the control group, assigned bail at a particular rate on average, and the experimental group that was had death anxiety activated. had an average bail that was significantly higher than this other group, and the conclusion was by the by these researchers there that death anxiety has an impact on us, and the impact is largely unconscious. So that what these judges were doing was they were using their mechanism to assign bail to elevate themselves and to make them feel more secure. In a relatively benign. Um, uh, uh, criminal uh, act, uh, prostitution. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, they, they did this not just in this group, they did this in other uh, fields. Um, and so they were able to duplicate this, and they got more sophisticated. The, they moved from paper to, uh, to computer programs in which you would go through a particular program, and for, for a fraction of a second, the word death flash on the screen in a way that you couldn't be conscious of, um, but it would affect you. And in the uh, control group, another word, uh, five-letter word, was, was thrown that was not death, that was as, a, as part of the control. Anyway, very interesting we- research. However, what, what is lacking is what we're going to be talking about today, and that is the transformative powers of death, that death anxiety isn't simply a neurosis, that it's the opportunity for transcendence um, if our attitude is changed and open to that experience. Um, I want to throw this image out, um, and I'm going to show you one more clip, and we're going to take a break. Um, it's a wonderful story that that's um, actually p- written out as a dialogue in Helen Luke's book uh, called Old Age. Wonderful. It's a little, little book. And what she does is she takes um, a story that's in the middle of um, the Odyssey, not at the end, uh, and it's when uh, 
when Odysseus goes down to the underworld and conjures up Tiresias, who is the blind seer. And it's here that Tiresias... Uh, welcome. It's okay. If, of course, we have the chance... Oh, okay. you got to sit in front. Thank That's you. what happened. Uh, and Tiresias predicts what uh, Odysseus' final journey is and in, before he dies. In their final journey, he says that you will go inland. This is not a sea journey. You will carry an oar, a single oar, on your shoulder, and you will go inland until you find uh, arrive at a place that is unfamiliar to you, and a stranger will approach you, and a stranger will ask you, what winnowing fan is upon your shoulder? And um, Helen Luke kind of plays this out as a dialogue, as a, as a story. Um, but the winnowing fan image and the or image are very, very important because what she says is that the heroic attitude that we carry through life um, is eventually going to be used to be able to discern wheat from chaff. The winnowing fan is a tool that was used at the time to separate chaff from wheat. Um, it's, it's shaped like an ore, but it, but it can hold grain, and it th- the person throws the grain up, and the wind blows the chaff away and collects the, 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 the pure grain. It's a wonderful image of end of life, uh, looking at one's life, and, and also determining what is most important. That's the lens that we need at this time in life, uh, of life. And our whole heroic journey has led us to a place where we have this particular vision. Um, when I use the word cultural complex, I have to give it its origin or origins. Uh, Tom Singer was one of the first ones amongst some others to use it in a book, uh, Terror, Violence, and Impulse to Destroy, which is a book that Mary Doherty uh, has contributed to. She has a wonderful essay in it. Um, And his book came out after 2001, so it it was kind of a um, response to um, 9-11. And Tom Singer brings up some interesting things here. Uh, the components of a cultural complex include these. Traumatic injury to a vulnerable person, group of people, place, or value that carries or stands for the group spirit. Um, it includes a fear of annihilation of both the personal and group spirit by a foreign other. And it includes emergence of avenging, protector, persecutor, defense of the group spirit. I think that was what was going on with the response to the Affordable Care Act provision that people called death panels. Um, it was a um, it was a group response um, that was responding to the fear that their choice choices at the end of life were being taken away from them. It was not true, um, but it, it was their fear, and I think that there was an important response. It was a protective response, um, and uh, and. So and, and I think it needed to be respected, and I think it was respected. I've been describing two two models. Uh, this came from uh, first many many years ago. Read a book um, by Michael Carney, 
Now, it's very interesting. He is a palliative care physician, but he came from Dublin. And he brought, a, he had Hillman, uh, James Hillman uh, worked with him, and he developed a Jungian perspective on his work with dying patients in, in uh, Ireland. And he came to work uh, in the United States, and I think he's in California mm-hmm. right now. Um, but he brings a very Jungian perspective to his work, and he kind of separated it out, which was really helpful for me, two different archetypal um, archetypes. The medical model holds a particular archetype that we'll, we'll unpack and try to describe. Um, and hospice perspective is quite different, and I'll describe that as well. But here we have two different archetypes. As we flesh them out, we have to understand um, that they have taken a place now in our, in our society right now in almost a, an either-or context. And part of my thesis for my analyst training was uh, explaining how palliative care has emerged as the in-between, the liminal space between the medical model and the hospital. And it becomes very, very sacred space and very important space. Um, now, the movie that we're, that we're watching doesn't have anything to do with hospice, but certainly has to do with the journey. And um, for our purposes, what she's, what she's experiencing with a particular nurse, I would describe in, in terms of the healing model. Uh, what she experiences with the physicians is more on the medical model. So we'll, we'll see both of them. This next scene, and then we'll take a break, uh, is called the Grand Round scene. I like this scene because it establishes, first of all, her relationship with Dr. Posner, who is the resident oncologist, who she will have more contact with than with Dr. Kalikian. Um And uh, see how she responds uh, to this, this idea of Grand Rounds. Uh, it's, it's very interesting. A lot of things are accomplished in this one scene. Grand runs is what they call it. Action! Don't take a leap yet. How's it going? How are you feeling today? Fine. Great. Just great. <laughs> Very late detection. Stages four upon admission. Hexamethophosol has been plated to potentiate. Hex at 300 milligrams per meter squared. Been at 100. Today is cycle four, day three. All cycles are at the full dose. Primary site is here, behind the left ovary. Metastases are suspected in the peritoneal cavity, mainly in this area here, full lymphatic involvement. At the time of first look surgery, a significant part of the tumor was debulked, mainly in this area here, left, right ovaries, fallopian tube, uterus, all out. Uh, evidence of primary site shrinkage, shrinking in metastases has not been documented. Primary mass, frankly palpable uh, in pelvic exam, all through here. <coughs> Excellent command of details. Okay. Paul Valiaz with Exhibit. First is myelosuppression, a lowering of blood cell counts. That goes without saying. With this combination of agents, nephrotoxicity will be next. Anybody else? Side effects? Uh, nausea, vomiting. Yes. Routine. Pain while you're in Routine. 
psychological depression. No way. Uh, anything else? Other complaints of hacks and then? Come on. Mouth sores? Not yet. Skin rash? No. <laughs> Why don't we waste our time, Dr. Curry? I do not know, Dr. Kleekin. Use your eyes. So what uh, what do you make of that? She rather enjoyed herself, didn't she? Mm -hmm. What do you think that's about? Feeling superior? What? Feeling superior? That she did? Yeah. Well, there is a bit of inflation going on here. Um, She's the subject. Um, And Dr. Kleekian acts peer-to-peer, doesn't she? Doesn't he? Kind of elevates her to this peer status. I think part of that is uh, her professor status. Um, but there's something else going on, on here between her and Dr. Posner. I mean, he, obviously he struggles with Treating human beings, <laughs> he likes research, and you know he and he has to be reminded uh, to uh, to thank her. But um, I think there's a transference developing here. Um, I think he likes she likes him. Uh, I think she can identify with him. He's a researcher. He respects research, and he's very smart, and he's very competitive. She can identify with him. And he gave her a. Awake. I, I interpreted that as awake. Oh, okay. Kind of like I don't know what you call it, with his eye. I, I that's how I saw it. Okay. And, uh, that would in a way contribute, you know, to their both being PhDs and, and researchers. So yeah. Yeah. I, I just my, my sense was that he was trying to communicate. You know, he's on top of this and, and he's yes really monitoring things closely. Yes. 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 Yeah, that's interesting. How about her relationship to the masculine? 
Hmm? What do you think? There's no wrong answer. What's coming up for you? Because it becomes very important in a later scene. She has no family, obviously, right? She we found that out in the first scene. Yes. I get the feeling she feels a little superior. You think she feels superior? Yeah. Okay. Okay. She certainly can hold her own amongst these men, right? Which is very interesting. She's treated like an object, and she knows it. And she uh, really kind of is stiff up her lips. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, and but but her eyes say volumes. Yes. Back. Yes. Yes, and I think that's so important. This is a woman that, if she survived academia, uh, she could not express her emotions, right? So, but what's going on is building inside of her, um, and uh, and we'll we'll see in later scenes how that comes out. Okay, uh, let's take a ten-minute break. And we'll come back, we'll talk a little bit more about the transference, which I think is extremely important, something that I had to really understand uh, having worked in uh, hospice and palliative care, and now what, I'm, what I've learned working in my uh, analytic uh, practice. So, 10-minute break. Okay, let's, uh, let's restart. The... The idea of transference for me, um, I was not aware of when I was working in hospice and seeing patients. Um, excuse me, we're going to start. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to start. You'll have plenty of opportunities to talk again. Every hour I'm going to give you a break. Um, Transference is a mysterious thing. We've, we've defined it. It was a term that Freud came up with uh, primarily to define the um, uh, erotic transference that he experienced with, with his patients. Um, but over the decades, we realized that transference is much more complicated than that. Um, I would say from my experience, both in uh, my analytic work and in my palliative care work, there's an element of transference in which um, um, self-esteem, I think, conjures up for me what part of the transference is. That means that we're transferring, uh, Peter Mudd would call it the self, or what Jung's concept of the self was. Um, because it is the aspect of our, our nature that is immortal and that because of the threat of annihilation, however that emerges, we project onto a uh, idealized person, um, the self, our self, uh, for safekeeping. And that's done uh, automatically, psychologically, unconsciously. Um, so that Certainly in a situation in which somebody is confronting the end of their life, they are going to um, unconsciously look for 
somebody that can hold their transference. Um, I was going to include in here, but I didn't have, I think we were going to have time. A film clip, did you ever hear of, uh, you've heard of uh, Akira Kurosawa, the movie f- direct, uh, film director? Kurosawa, the film director. Uh, he made a film called Redbeard. And it's a film about a young uh, medical student, physician, new physician out of medical school, who gets assigned to a uh, government clinic in uh, 19th century Japan. Um, against his wishes, his father made him, made him uh, work at this government clinic because he had visions of working for some aristocratic family uh, and kind of coasting the rest of his life. Uh, and this government clinic took care of poor people. Um, and so he uh, falls under the, uh, the total edge of Redbeard, who is the medical director for, the, uh, for this clinic. And um, he, is, uh, he is trying to teach this young physician how to become a healer. Uh, all the while, or at least for half of the time, this young man doesn't want to be taught, um, thinks he knows it all. So part of uh, this young man's journey is to discover the fact that what he knows is, is, uh, is nothing to do with healing or very little to do with healing. And by the end of the film, he, he, he changes his mind and he wants to devote his life to working under uh, Redbeard. So see the movie. It's a wonderful movie. But my point in bringing it up is the first assignment Redbeard gives this young man is to sit with a dying man, old man. <laughs> and, he sa- and he tells him, the first thing you have to experience are the limits of your, of your craft. And he says, stay with this man during this most solemn time. And it's an excruciating film clip because this young man cannot sit there while this, this man is having trouble breathing and he's slowly dying. So he eventually has to escape from the room. Um, but I think the experience of being able to sit with somebody in this suffering is so important because I think they're the, the nature of the relationship with, with medical practitioners or, or anybody in a hospice, it could be the nurse's aide, it could be the uh, volunteer, it could be uh, anybody of the hospice team that, that happens to connect with this particular patient. That, that can allow that transference to occur and be held. And it's so important. And I think as we'll see in this film, what that means, uh, that somebody can hold that energy, that experience, and what can emerge in that uh, wonderful space. So Jung, in a very interesting, but I think mistitled essay, called The Therapeutic Value of Abreaction, which has very little to do with abreaction, but it has a lot to do with the tr- nature of the transference. He says, hence the sudden severance of the transference is always attended by extremely unpleasant and even dangerous consequences because it maroons the patient in an impossibly unrelated situation. Okay, And we do this all the time when we're transferring patients, when one physician is giving up a patient for hospice. 
um, then now that patient has to is is thrown into space, and there and it feels betrayed. Uh, one of one of the things that I experienced that had to understand o- over the years was that when you walk in to talk to a patient that has been referred to hospice, very often they or the family or both are very angry, and so you're walking into a situation of of, of anger very often, and. A lot of that has to do with the experience of betrayal because they've been carried along this heroic journey as far as it'll go and often abruptly told, I'm sorry, there's nothing more that we can do in whatever way that's said, and and that's it. And they often make a referral to hospice or palliative care. Um, and I will say, that, 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 <laughs> you may find this difficult to believe if you don't work in the field, but I often, when I first meet with patients and families, um, their reaction is, I have no idea why you, I was referred to you. Because there's, there's very little explanation. They simply say, talk to palliative care, they'll tell you everything. Or talk to hospice, they'll tell you everything. Um, and so I s- start from beginning trying to establish a, a trusting relationship from that point on because I realize what all that what all just transpired and when we talk about transformation the psychological process of transformation betrayal uh, is uh, and seems to be a component of and I'll talk about that more more throughout this but um, uh, James Hillman wrote an essay uh, called betrayal which I think does a really good job of describing the process of individuation as including uh, something that, that can be described as betrayal. And I'll talk more about that. Um, so going back to this, reimagine what's going on here uh, with this patient who is uh, being told that there's uh, that they're going to have to send them to somebody else. Just imagine psychologically what's going on there for this man. Um, as we kind of separate out, what what is the colloquial attitude regarding medicine? Because there's a huge transference, collective transference onto medicine, medical establishments, uh, Hospital systems now have these mecca hospital structures uh, that just amaze me. I've been going into hospitals for the last 40 years, and they just be get, getting bigger and bigger and um, more intimidating, right? It's just intimidating to walk in, into a hospital now. Um, and so what I was... Um, realizing was that how did this this transference evolve where we imagine that these meccas will take care of us if we get sick they're going to take care of us we're we're kind of raised with that that uh, collective belief Ernest Becker said that culture evolved as a buffer between us and the fear of annihilation now when you think about that and as I was studying this stuff and studying Becker I began to realize I would pick up um, radio um, uh, news uh, reports. The media is very good at, at, at announcing new studies that come out 
And by the ones that get to the media are the ones that have to do with what you can do to avoid death. <laughs> and I remember at the time when I was studying, I said, I heard one study was done that if a man drinks more than at least five cups of coffee in a day, that it reduces his likelihood of prostate cancer. And I said, I got that going for me. And, you know, I felt, oh, you know, now it could have been another study that said too much coffee causes heart disease, and then, you know, then my self esteem would have would drop. But you see how this, the media just feeds us these things about how to be immortal and, uh, and provides us with, with this buffering system, right? So they did this. This is uh, available on, you're all going to get this PowerPoint, by the way, so there's some. Uh, uh, URLs and some uh, books and authors and page numbers and all that. So you'll get that in an email. But I, <clears throat> Amy actually uh, brought this to my attention. And this is a wonderful podcast put on by Radiolab. And what they did was a, they asked, um, they gave a scenario, a patient scenario to lay people and doctors. And the scenario was if you had uh, some type of brain um, insult that left you unable to move, eat, do the normal activities of daily living, um, but otherwise your brain was still functioning, would you um, want uh, to be resuscitated? Would you want to be ventilated? Would you want dialysis? Would you want chemotherapy, surgery? Given the, all the scenarios for that, <laughs> Under that circumstance, they pay that patient scenario, and the layperson invariably said, "Yes, I want CPR. I want ventilation. I want antibiotics. I want I want it all." And the physicians invariably, you could see the tall bar there, said, "No." Given that scenario, all these doctors said. No, I don't want to be resuscitated. I don't want dialysis. I don't blah, blah, blah. Now, that disparity in attitude is very significant. How do we arrive at that? One of the conversations that I have to have all the time because I talk about advanced directives is CPR. And a layperson is going to have the attitude or belief that cardiopulmonary resuscitation, which goes all the way back to the mid-60s when it, when it came out, um, will save your life. And that's the fantasy. And who, how does that fantasy fed? Television. Movies, right? Television shows like ER. They estimated, as part of the study, they actually estimated what percentage of patients survive resuscitation on, a t on television shows, and it was like 60-70%. The actual statistic around successful resuscitation of somebody whose heart has stopped is less than 8%. And really successful where they're up and walking around is less than 2%. And the other 2 to 8%, the 6%, are people that are going to be left on a ventilator because they can't be weaned off and will eventually die within months. So essentially... If the fantasy is that I'm going to be resuscitated and be able to get up and live my life again, there's a less than a 2% chance of that occurring. Now, how is it that most of us walk around imagining that we can be 
successfully resuscitated, and that has to do with this um, this uh, belief in immortality that we are constantly taught and fed and from 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 little on up. Um, my experience when we moved into hospice, which which is such an interesting perspective. Working in hospice, it gives you a perspective that's outside of the heroic, to some measure, the heroic attitude of the rest of the culture because you see what these actors see all the time. And But at the same time, you are coming to meet with a patient and family uh, and talking about something that is countercultural. It is countercultural to think about hospice, to think about whatever hospice conjures up. Um, and and I tell families when they choose hospice, they are doing something countercultural, but they are also it takes a great deal of courage to go against the general mainstream because on some level they know that they're going to get pushback. A wonderful book um, that's a little book that I, I, I don't know what got me to pick it up and read it because I don't read these kinds of books. It was, a, it was, it was about a man... Um, a CEO of a large company that came uh, that uh, was diagnosed with glioblastoma. He was given a three-month uh, prognosis, and he decided what he, how he was going to spend his final days, and that included write, writing a book about his experience, which he did. Um, one of the things that I, I noticed that he wrote about and talked about, which I experienced in my, my career, is this is the backlash from choosing limited treatment options or choosing hospice. Uh, and in his case, he chose um, uh, radiation instead of chemotherapy. Uh, the chemotherapy was going to make him sick and it was going to limit his ability to, to function and enjoy his remaining days. That was his conclusion. Uh, the radiation, he, would be able, he felt that he, he could be able to survive that. He lost friendships because of that choice. He said he couldn't believe that some of his friends were so angry at him because he didn't choose a complete whatever was available um, that he lost friends. Now, in my experience, I have family members that fight about this. And they will fight it in my, their first meeting. When I meet with them, they will be all there, and you, you'll see who's on one side and who's on the other. Um, it, is, um, it is quite a battle. Uh, uh, and it's archetypal, again. So we have these two sides of the archetype. So now as we flesh this out, um, on the medical model side, which for me includes everything other than hospice, uh, hospice and palliative care, uh, is some characteristics. You can add to this um, over the years I've, uh, I have. First of all, prolonging life is a basic ethical stance. It's part of the medical model. Um, and we have to understand and appreciate that. Because on the hospice side, it's promoting comfort. Okay, those are two very diff different ethical stances. And when I work with nurses that go from one medical model to hospice, they have a psychological adjustment to make because they have to put prolonging life in second in the back seat, and it's very difficult. Uh, but they do it. But there's a transition period. The uh, second uh, is uh, the heroic stance that we've talked about. 
Um, and we'll talk about the, the heroes. You, you, uh, Jung often talked about the, the hero and the, the hero as the basic, as one of the basic predominant archetypes. But um, the the hero image is of the and in, in primitive cultures was of the sun. In some primitive cultures, the sun carries the image of the hero. The sun rises uh, to a meridian, right? Uh, and so we can take that image as the heroic attitude uh, associated with the medical model. But what the medical model doesn't allow is the, the, what happens after the meridian, <laughs> that the sun goes down, right? So that journey, uh, which is an inevitable part of life's journey, it's also a part of the, uh, the journey of a medical uh, uh, problem, uh, is, is ignored, right? So now we've divided, if we want to use that image, we've divided the medical model that ends at the meridian and now hospice or some such, something like it comes after that, right? So what we've done now is divided what is a full life, we've divided it into these two stages, these are two ar- into two archetypes rather than one archetype. <clears throat> Dr. Posner, I think, um, well, um, represents uh, the medical model for our purposes um, today. Um, death is considered a failure. We, we experience this overall. On the hospice side of things, we often experience uh, physicians getting angry when their patients ask about hospice or families refer hospice or the, and they're not ready to refer hospice or they're against hospice and they often uh, get angry and part of that is the experience that death is, is failure. Um, um, it also includes kind of this idea of the rational brain, and by that I mean the left hemisphere. There's a wonderful book called The uh, Master and His Emissary by Ian McGilchrist. It's a, a book in which he did years and years of studies of functional MRI scans in which um, patients who had uh, uh, blockages between their left and right hemispheres, they did studies and experiments with people that didn't have a corpus callosum where there was a connection between those spheres. And what, they, what he put together is a really a brilliant and, and supports analytical psychology because it's the left hemisphere that evolved later in evolution when language developed. And the right hemisphere is more more primitive, and you know the the idea of one's emotional and the other's emotional is meaningless. But the right hemisphere holds information that's not necessarily available to the left hemisphere. So what what uh, McGilchrist discovered was, and he said this very simply, it's as if and and Jung bears this out. He doesn't talk about the brain in in this terms, but he talks about the collective psyche in these terms that at some point we lost connection to this other hemisphere that had important information. And from what Gilchrist describes is that it's as if the left hemisphere doesn't know that it needs the right hemisphere. That's, the, that's what we live in today. The right hemisphere knows it needs both. So this journey of discovering the, 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 the value of the right hemisphere, um, or uh, collective unconscious, or the unconscious, um, 
is very, very important. And I think we see this played out uh, in the film. Um, the medical model also focuses on data. I am inundated with, with data when I get a patient referred to me, which I abhor and I don't like looking at, although it's my job. I try not to look at anything until I meet the patient and family. That first encounter is not biased by anything, which is an analytic attitude, right? Um, patient comes into another, even a patient you've been seeing, you want to open space up so that you don't bring anything in the past to, to determine what that session might bring, um, to open space up for them. Oh, um, well, that, that is a precursor, or that, that is actually uh, telling you what the next scene is. Okay, so the next scene is, um, is, a, is a brilliant scene. It introduces a new character, and you'll, after you see it, you'll know what, you know what that slide's about. Um, now, Vivian is, is experiencing treatment. She's lost her hair. She's now in, in full dose mode of getting chemotherapy, and she's um, now looking back on her life. So these next scenes are a, a, a life review, and she's looking, and these are very specific memories that she's having and very meaningful and, and packed with, uh, with something because she is in search of something. And you see she's in search of trying to understand this journey that she's going through because it is causing her tension and distress. Um, and she goes back to a memory she had in graduate school when she was studying under Professor Ashford, who was uh, the the uh, professor of John Donne, the, the specialist in John Donne. So she was she sought her as an advisor, and now she is meeting with Professor Ashford. Oh, yes. Your essay on Hedison's Six, Miss Baring, is a melodrama with a veneer of scholarship unworthy of you. To say nothing of Dunn, do it again. Oh, I begin with the text, Miss Baring, not with a feeling. Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. You've entirely missed the point of the poem, because I must say you've used an edition of the text that is inauthentically punctuated. In the Gardner edition of the text... Well, that edition is just out of the line, sorry. You take this too lightly. This is metaphysical poetry, not a modern novel. The standards of scholarship and critical reading which one would apply to any other text are simply insufficient. The effort must be total for the results to be meaningful. punctuation of the last line of this sonnet is merely an insignificant detail. The sonnet begins with a valiant struggle with death, calling on all the forces of intellect and drama to vanquish the enemy. But it is ultimately about overcoming the seemingly insuperable barriers separating life, death, and eternal life. In the edition you chose, this profoundly simple meaning is sacrificed to hysterical punctuation. And death, capital D, shall be no more, semicolon. Death, capital D, comma, thou shalt die, exclamation mark. 
Are you going for this sort of thing? I suggest you take up Shakespeare. <laughs> Garden's edition of the Holy Sonnets returns to the Westmoreland manuscript source of 1610, not for sentimental reasons, I assure you, but because Helen Gardner is a scholar. It reads, And death shall be no more, comma, Death thou shalt die, Nothing but a breath, a comma, separates life from life everlasting. Very simple, really. With the original punctuation restored, death is no longer something to act out on a stage with exclamation marks. It is a comma, a pause. In this way, the uncompromising way, one learns something from the poem, wouldn't you say? Life, death, soul, God, past, present, not insuperable barriers, not semicolons, just a comma. Life, death, I see it. It's a metaphysical conceit, it's wit. I'll go back to the library and It is not wit, Miss Baring, it is truth. The paper's not the point, isn't it? Vivian, you're a bright young woman. Use your intelligence. Don't go back to the library. Go out. Enjoy yourself with friends, hmm? I um, went outside. It was a warm day. I... Oh, there were students on the lawn talking about... Well, nothing. Nothing. Simple human truth, uncompromising scholarly standards. They're connected. I just couldn't. I went back to the library. Anyway. All right. Significant contribution to knowledge. Eight cycles of chemotherapy. Give me the full dose. The full dose. Every time. What is Vivian struggling with here? This is so important. This scene reflects an ongoing struggle that she is trying to resolve throughout this, this journey. What is she struggling with? It's beautifully played out in this scene with using Dunn and Dunn's poem as a backdrop. The poem has something to do with heroism, right? Um, that the heroic attitude um, and making death bigger, right, is what we're doing. The heroic attitude makes death bigger than it is. And Professor Ashford is trying to teach her something here. So think about that. But also, let's look at her relationship to the feminine. Professor Ashford changes in this scene. And that change is very significant. How does she change? She very quickly figures out that Vivian... It's not about Vivian's hard work or, or lack thereof. 
It's something else that Vivian is missing. So it's as if Professor Ashford has this maturity that holds so much in her personality that she was able to adapt. She is, she is the consummate professor, right? But at the same time, she takes on something that she felt that Vivian needed um, by the end of that scene. That becomes so important uh, to this story. And Vivian's response to her is like she's befuddled. <laughs> she doesn't know what she's asking of her. Um, and she's she's really struck, struggling. This is this is part of her suffering. This is not just a, about physical suffering. This is about the psychological suffering that we're called to make in such a situation to adapt to a situation to to reach into uh, the unconscious and pull out aspects of our personality that have been undeveloped that have not yet been brought forth, and that is very painful. Part of this series of um, the the intersection of the spirit of the times and the and the spirit of the depths, which is something that Jung writes about in the Red Book, is so important because what we're trying to do, well, you're getting a picture of the spirit of the times, right? Uh, if the spirit of the times includes this heroic attitude that we're all influenced by. It certainly played out to a great extent in uh, health and the healthcare system and uh, and the medical model. Um, this is what Jung wrote: uh, "The spirit of the time in me wanted to recognize the greatness and extent of the supreme meaning, but not its littleness. The spirit of the depths, however, conquered the arrogance, and I had to swallow the small." as a means of healing the immortal in me. You see, that, you see what he's doing there? He's recognizing that the immortal in him, that's in all of us, is keeping him from a particular attitude. Now, he would eventually, in the 1925 lectures, translate that as the uh, dominant uh, uh, Function, the dominant personality versus the inferior uh, function, uh, that where the conscious personality contains the dominant function and the unconscious contains the inferior function. And so he would translate that as, um, I was trying to get to <laughs> the inferior function of my personality. That has been undeveloped. And he portrays this in a, in both in art, which I should have put in here, uh, the, the painting of him killing Siegfried. He had a dream about that. What was that dream about? That dream was so important for him to understand is that he, he, he said in Memories, Dreams, Reflections that he was going to, if he didn't understand that dream, he was going to kill himself, and he had a gun in his desk drawer. That's how serious he took this. Uh, and he was trying to force his way into an aspect of his personality because he felt so entrenched in his heroic attitude that killing the hero in him seemed to be the only way to do that. And, he, and by 1925, he had, he had a perspective that he didn't have um, back then. So this predicts what Vivian is going through and what Vivian's journey is because she herself has 
uh, an inflation. She has a one-sidedness to her personality that's going to be challenged. Um, I have there. There are stories and images um, that uh, come, come to um, all of us. I'm, I'm sure. For uh, for me, some of these stay with me a long time, um, and I've come to to realize that's that's common uh, with uh, Jungian analysts that they'll work on something for for many years. Not just Jungian analysts. Um, later on, I'm going to talk about the story of Gilgamesh, at least the 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 end part of the story. And um, one of the translators and writers about Gilgamesh was the novelist John Gardner. John Gardner spent the last ten years of his life before he was killed in a motorcycle accident. The last ten years of his life devoted to this story, translating it, reading about it. Jung says uh, in um, in, I think, his essay on um, literature. He says there's a difference between psychology, psychological literature and uh, what he calls visionary literature. Visionary literature uh, captures the archetypal realm in a way that psychological literature doesn't. Uh, and he says you know this <laughs> when you can't leave a story alone. When, when you have to study all the commentaries, when you have to read everything that's available on it, and when it, won't, when it holds on to you for long periods of time. Well, this short story, uh, this Grimm's fairy tale, has hung on to me now for many years. Um, and there are components in it that, that I think are relevant for us to look at. Now, why do we do this? Well, if we're going to access the spirit of the depths, we have to go back. We have to go back to a time outside of the present outside of this heroic attitude that we're immersed in to get a little different perspective. So um, I'll, I'll talk about a few elements of this story to, just in the interest of time. First of all, it's a, it's a story about a um, father who has a 13th son who decides on uh, that he, he doesn't have the resources to take care of all these kids. Uh, so he goes out on the road and he uh, finds death Death approaches him and said, I'll be your uh, son's grandfather, uh, godfather. Uh, and the father figures, I'll find a godfather to help me with supporting this, this child. And first he goes through God, and he goes through, um, he goes through the devil, but he settles on death because death is a great equalizer, uh, which is very, very important uh, to the story. So anyway, the godfather brings him out and you know, when he reaches a certain age, and he shows him an herb that, that exists, that will heal people. And he says, you have to, but this is what you have to do, you have to live within these rules. That when you are called to the bedside of a patient, I will either stand at the foot of the bed or the head of the bed. If I am at the head of the bed, you can give the herb to the patient and the patient will be healed and you can confidently tell the patient that you will, you will heal them, it will heal them. But if I am at the foot of the bed, you have to tell the patient that there is nothing that, that can be provided. There is no doctor in the world that, that can save them. There's nothing that can be done. Um, now, uh, the young man listens to that for quite a while, becomes uh, a renowned physician in the world. Um, but then, lo and behold, his inflation <laughs> uh, uh, appears, and the king 
becomes sick, and he's called to the bedside of the king. Uh, death appears at the at the foot of the bed, and so the physician knows what that means. However, he's going to trick death, and he turns the king around so that the head is at the foot, and death gets pissed off at him. He says, don't do that again. Um, and of course, the, and then the king is healed. Then the, then the king's daughter comes, and the king says, I'll give you the kingdom, uh, and you can marry my daughter, if uh, whoever can heal my daughter. So that gets to him. And, that. and so he does the same thing with the daughter, and then death says, uh, 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 I told you. So he brings him down to the underworld, and he shows him all the candles in the underworld. And the candles are of different heights uh, related to whether or not it's a child versus an adult versus age and so forth. And so the young, the physician says, Godfather, show me my candle. And he shows him his candle, and it's almost ready to go out. And he says, uh, oh, please, please, put my light, light on a, another candle. And, and death pretends that he's going to do that, but then he drops it, and the physician dies. Um, this is a wonderful story because it includes all the elements that we're talking about, right? Uh, inflation. <laughs> and the risk of the risk of inflation, um, and that there is a cost to uh, to tricking death. So we wonder, with all of our medical science, what is what is the unconscious compensation for that on a collective level? We have to ask ourselves that. Um, but I think the um, the realization for this young physician is that he has to, and this is this is true of Kurosawa's film too, and the young physician that it goes through a pedagogy of becoming a physician under the under the um, teaching uh, of Redbeard, um, that one's inflation, inf- inflationary attitude, has to be dealt with and has to be changed in order to become a true healer. And I think that part of one of the, uh, the um, purposes of this story. If we look at um, the history of medicine, um, we can simply look at uh, so the paintings of the 1800s to tell us, well, what transpired? We know that prior to the late 1800s, much of... Uh, Medicine was dealt with by by family members that were homeopaths that were simply passing on their knowledge from generation to generation. Right? There weren't in, in hospitals, there weren't institutions, there weren't even doctors really until the late eighteen hundreds. Um, there weren't medical schools uh, until then, and so around this time, uh, surgery surgery became successful. Uh, they started learning techniques, and this picture, this painting by Thomas Eakins kind of shows the heroism that the, the heroic transference that's emerging now. Just look at the, the physician uh, standing back, uh, the light shining on him. There's this kind of uh, heroic stance, right? And I think that's what Eakins was trying to display here. And there's, there's several uh, paintings around this time of medical scenes like this that was kind of elevating. They didn't have television, so they had to paint and kind of elevating uh, the the fact that medical science was accomplishing all this. So that began a process of collective transference 
where our sense of immortality was being now transferred onto uh, uh, medicine as an institution. Uh, look at the, the comparableness. This is uh, in the late 1800s, too. Um, uh, this painting was by Frederick Layton, uh, and it depicts uh, Hercules' uh, visit to um, King uh, Admetus after his wife died, uh, Queen Alcestis uh, died. And Hercules actually was trying to enjoy uh, a, a party, <laughs> and when he when he saw that everybody was depressed, he asked why, and he found out that the queen had died, had just died. So he decided then to rush to the bedside, and he caught Thanatos. If you can see Thanatos kind of lurking here in the background, uh, before he could take uh, her soul, and Hercules uh, struggled with it. So this kind of gives you a sense of the attitude that was had been emerging around death. Very different attitude uh, from Gilgamesh, which was 3,600 years ago, right? The difference in time, a difference in attitude, and we'll talk about that later. Um, around 1935, um, a s small book on death and dying was published by this medical director, uh, Alfred Worcester, uh, from Harvard Medical School. It's a wonderful little book, uh, but the reason I bring it up is he wrote the book because what he was seeing with new physicians that were emerging in 1935 was that they were abdicating their responsibilities around the dying because they felt that their job was the heroic uh, saving people's lives and that they didn't see any purpose for themselves in death, and, and this doctor was, was against that, and uh, he spent the life. And what's interesting about this book, it's still in print. Um, and so the book is about the care of the dying and also uh, a plea from him for doctors, young doctors, to uh, not abdicate their responsibility to nurses. So what was happening back then. And what happened after that, despite the book, uh, all the way up to uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Now what did... Um, oh, before we go to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, now we're fleshing together this other model that uh, Michael Kearney called the healing model. And here I represent that as Susie. And these are very different elements. First of all, the, the ethical stance... Um, oh no, that's not the healing model. I'll show you the healing model in a minute. Okay. So let's um, let's do this uh, video clip of Vivian, and this is going to be a. Um, so we talked about her relationship to the feminine and the masculine. And this gives us a little more information about her life that I think is very valuable. I can recall the time, the very hour of the very day when I knew words would be my life's work. I like that one best. Read another. 
pink reed, the tail of the flopsy bunnies. And the bunnies on the front. The Tale of the Flopsy Bunnies by Beatrix Potter. It is said that the effect of eating too much lettuce is so, 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 what, what is this word? Set in bits. Sop all I thick. So poor I thick. What does that mean? Supper every. Causing sleep. Causing sleep. Makes you sleepy. So poor thick means makes you sleepy. That's right. Now, use it in a sentence. What has a soporific effect on you? What has a soporific effect on me? What makes you sleep? Uh, nothing. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what about you? What has a soporific effect on me? Let me think. Boring conversation, I suppose, after dinner. Me too. Boring conversation. Good. Excellent. Carry on. It is said that the effect of eating too much lettuce is soporific. The little bunnies in the picture are sleeping. They're sleeping, like you said, because of soporific. The illustration bore out the meaning of the word, just as he had explained it. At the time, it seemed like magic. So, imagine the effect the words of John Dunn first had on me. Ratiocination, concatenation, coruscation, tergiversation. Medical terms are less evocative. Still. I want to know what the doctors mean when they anatomize me. My only defense is the acquisition of vocabulary. Um, what a beautiful scene. Now we have, we have some more information about Vivian, right? What you get a sense of here? Yes? I feel like she's still clinging to the going to the library. Okay. She hasn't taken the advice of her professor to just see the comma. Mm. She still needs the capitals of the explanation. Mm. I see that too. But what is she gaining from this scene? Why is this? But let's imagine that this scene is, this just memory just was conjured up in her with this. Why? Why at this time? What is she? What is she trying to get? Because the words connected to her father. Yes, yes, yes. 
that she became a professor of English literature for a reason. And one of that was she adored her father. And there is no mother in this picture. There is no mother in this story, at least no biological mother. Um, so she's, she's discovering, and I think that's the tear, was that she was discovering where she came from, right? She's putting the pieces together. One of the other elements of, of the transformation process is dismemberment. <laughs> we are all dismembered until we can put the pieces together. And putting those pieces together can be very painful. Until a child, you could just see her mind work. Uh-huh. Like, oh, the lettuce, and that's what that word means. Yeah. That beaded and that chest. Yeah. And the green. I mean, she, you could just see her thinking yeah and the joy the joy of rediscovering the joy of of their childhood experience that she may have lost track of in her adult life she's reconnecting with it what else yes I don't know about other people in her family who suggest their word to me She's looking for attachment, mm. and this was a way for her. She could attach to words the way she attached mm-hmm. to her father. Yeah, that's that is a, a a very powerful image that she kept her attachment to her father through her work, through words, through her po- through the poetry of Janda. And it also suggests that she did not attach to people. Pardon? It was a substitute. It was a substitute. And maybe part of her realization is that, too, Mm -hmm. that she chose that over attachments to people. Okay. Now here's the spirit of the depths. Um, So in contrast to the spirit of the times that I call prolonging life, all the elements of the medical model I mentioned before now we're getting to the other side of the equation. Um, promoting comfort is, is, a, is an ethical switch when we talk, start talking about palliative care and hospice. We're talking about letting go of heroism. Whatever else is going on, there is a letting go of this heroic attitude. And I don't know if that's the best way to describe it, but there's something to that. Fantasy thinking, which was what Jung's differentiating between directed thinking and fantasy thinking. Um, what is she doing in these scenes? She's fantasizing. She's going back. These aren't just memories. These are, these are living uh, images that are within her in the present that she is working with and trying to understand um, their meaning, trying to derive meaning, uh, sorting the wheat from the chaff. Um, death as a goal. Where did that come from? Jung said that a couple of times. He said, if we look at death from a psychological perspective, then it's a goal. And whenever I told hospice people that, they looked at me like I had two heads. You know, my, my relationship to that image has changed over, over the years. Because it's you have to grapple with that. Death is a goal. 
Sit, let that sit with you. It's interesting to hold on to that. And then the emotional brain, as I mentioned before, including the left and right hemispheres. Um, there's something in hospice, there's a big change in hospice um, regarding focusing on the personal and the narrative. So hospice people talk about story. They talk about uh, patients' stories. They carry around patients' stories. It's very meaningful. Not that that's not done in the medical uh, model side of things, um, but it takes on a predominance. Uh, things like um, we wonder about patients' death. The medical model uh, thinks that you can come up with a list of criteria so that you can predict when somebody's going to die, <laughs> which is absurd. Um, on this side of things, we know that if somebody is is staying alive, particularly way beyond the, the body's ability to do so, we often ask the question, what is it that they're staying alive for? And we ask the families, and sometimes the families will ask the patient, is there something? And sometimes it's a an event, an anniversary, uh, or they have to finish something that they started, or something. I, I remember uh, a young man in his... Uh, 40s that he had uh, pancreatic cancer that was three weeks at the end of his life he was comatose. Three weeks. No liquids, nothing. And we believe that he was waiting for his son's graduation from high school. And quite literally his son came home after graduating and went to his father's bedside and in cap and gown he he reached over to his father and told his father that he was done. He graduated. And his father stopped breathing within 30 minutes. And I've had arguments with doctors who try to convince me that if we just provide enough science, we can figure out when somebody's going to die. And I tell them, good luck. <laughs> uh, and then lastly, spirit of the depths means something about changes coming from the inside. This is not just chemotherapy. This is not just what's happening on the outside. It's not just what's happening to the body. It's what is changing inside, and our film uh, depicts uh, that beautifully. Okay, let's take uh, another 10-minute break. Is there anything anybody wants to say, any comments, any anecdotes? Yes? And to just a comment, a lot of times it seems that people wait until they're alone. Mm. Yes. Yes. And I'm just wondering, with your experience, you know, as and all that you've done, what what is your comment on that? Uh, what do I believe is going on? Um, well, first of all, I'll validate yes. Uh, we and we prepare families because they stand vigil, and you know, so many times the uh, the patient waits until they the the loved one leaves, and then the loved one is feels like they. They abandon them or they feel bad about that. But we prepare them that, um, what do I think is going on? Well, it kind of goes along with the experience that, that I experience all the time that hospice people will tell you about is that when somebody's dying, they're often in a different place. Um, their eyes are closed. They're, uh, they look as though they're asleep. But part of them is in a different place in which they're experiencing uh, dead people talking to them, mm -hmm. people that have already passed that are speaking to them, that are arguing with them in some cases, that are that something is going on there because the families will say, oh, they just, they're talking about Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe passed away. 
Uh, and that has happened so many times in my career, and if you talk to any hospice person, they'll tell you, but there's no validation of that in a hospice curricula. They won't tell you, they'll, they'll call it delirium. Um, but I think that's archetypal. And what is happening there? Um, something is happening there. You see what I'm saying? Something is happening. Um, I'll leave it at that. Okay, let's take a break. Uh, Ten minutes. Let's get back together. I want to. Uh, I want to, Mary. I, I would like you to share your story, willing if you're willing to share it with the group because I think it's important. And I'm going to follow up with a similar story of a patient that I experienced in working in palliative care. Um, Mary, why don't you share that? My husband, Peter Thompson, was a patient at Northwestern. He died uh, it'll be seven years this uh, May. We were in the cancer doctor's office, and my daughter was with me, and I was there, and Peter was suffering terribly from the effects of the chemo treatment, and he was at the sink throwing up. And he suddenly stopped and he looked at the doctor and he said, I can't do this anymore. And the doctor was very uh, together. He, he, this, was a, this was a good experience that we can talk about it that way, that Northwestern managed this very well. And he said, you do not have to go on with this treatment. He gave him other options and Peter said, no. And he called the palliative care doctor in the office, there was a kind of a ceremony and a change of the body. And he, the cancer doctor walked out and then we sat with the palliative It was a very powerful moment. I'm still been sitting here with him all day. Very moving. But actually, Northwestern did a good job. Wow. Wow. Um. So, so thank you so much for sharing that, Mary, because what she's describing, um, first of all, is the way it should be. But what happened there was you, you um, have an oncologist that is, that is, moving, is, is doing what an oncologist does, uh, which is the, providing the available treatment. Um, but, and some oncologists are better at this than others. Are they willing to listen when the to the patient when the patient says, I've had enough. And how do they respond to that? Now, in this particular case, they called in the palliative care physician, which is very typical nowadays because I showed you the cartoon, right? <laughs> I don't know how to tell you this, so I'm going to send you to somebody who can. So they call in palliative care people um, to help have a discussion that's very difficult to have otherwise. The tension... Uh, that was that 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 mounts up that is called forth, and Mary described it as a ritual. It felt like a ritual. It is a ritual. That's the psychological space that's offered, and in the optimal situation, you will have a clinician there that can hold both sides of the equation. That can hold not only the medical model but also this healing model, so that the decision is made for the patient in the patient's best interest but that it's not there's you don't experience a rejection okay um, the the Kurosawa film the physician that could not stand being in the room with the dying patient was rejecting the patient right you need a clinician that can hold all of it and 
that has the experience to be able to pull everybody together because they all have a different piece of, of this, pull everybody together so everybody can experience a transcendent experience out of the current dilemma into a new space. Do you see it? Do you see that? And, and thank, thank God that, can, that happens, that can happen. When it doesn't happen, it's, it's, it's miserable. When it does happen, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Okay, um, my, I'll, I'll give you my, uh, one of my experiences. So what I have learned to do through my analytic training was to, first of all, have a very different perspective on that encounter. To bring to that encounter the very thing that palliative physician brought, which was the whole experience. To carry the whole experience so that whatever needed to emerge was allowed to emerge. And I had, I was taking care of a woman uh, in her 50s who was dying of, of, of uh, liver and uh, biliary cancer. Uh, she was given three months to live. And um, she, um, she was being treated by the oncologist aggressively and um, I was seeing her, I started seeing her weekly, uh, and it was turning into a a psychotherapeutic sessions in which at first she had the daughter there. The daughter was very entrenched in the, in the medical model of be doing everything, right? She wanted everything done. She wanted to keep her mother alive. Uh, at, a, at about the third or fourth session, my patient, her name was uh, Teddy, she asked her daughter to leave at a certain point in the, in the, in the interview. <clears throat> and then she continued that through the, the, the further sessions, each of the successive sessions. There would be a period where the daughter was there to ask questions, and then a period of time where the, when we were alone, Teddy would share with me her struggle with continuing treatment, that she was doing so not only for her daughter and her grandchild, uh, who she was living with, but also for the oncologist. And week after week, I would see her deteriorating. I would come in, and she was vomiting, and she was in pain, and uh, we were trying to stay on top of the symptoms. And I was getting very angry at the oncologist that was allowing this to continue when I knew it was very clear that she was dying. But each session, she would tell me how difficult it was that, for her to... To, to continue to go on to continue to bear this uh, to bear this suffering, um, and then um, something changed in one session. I asked her, and why I didn't ask her? This is a typical question I ask, uh, but I didn't ask it for weeks. What was the first um, uh, interview when you were told about your diagnosis and prognosis? What was that like? <coughs> um, and she said, the doctor told me that I only had a few months to live and that he was recommending hospice. And, and the reason was the treatment that he had available was, was not going to, would probably, would make her very sick and would probably not necessarily prolong her life. And it, if it did, it would prolong it for, for weeks, not months. And, she, she told me, she said she broke down. She just broke down. And she says, please, please, um, 
don't give up on me. Please don't give up on me. Now, when she, as soon as she told me that, I was just flooded with, with a realization, oh my, because in a previous session she had told me, in actually the first session she had told me when she was growing up and she was 13 years old, her parents divorced, her father was a drug addict, um, her mother took up with a boyfriend, the boyfriend and my client didn't get along, so her mother kicked her out of the house. And at 13 years old, she went to live with a girlfriend of hers whose parents were willing to parent her. And they parented her until she was uh, old enough to go to college. And she went to college and she, she built a life. And she built a family for herself. So when she told me that the oncologist was willing to treat her because she pleaded with him not to give up, it was because I realized that she had been abandoned by her, her parents. And she was asking the oncologist to do something to, re to remedy something uh, uh, that, that tra had transpired uh, at such a young age. And when I realized that, my anger completely lifted because I realized that what was transpiring between her and the oncologist was very sacred. And it was not, I was not to interfere with that. And the week after that, the oncologist had told her that he had realized, he had come to the realization, and I never called him, that the chemo was causing her more harm than good and that he was recommending hospice. Now, it was then that she was ready for hospice, not that first session. She got hospice. We provided hospice services for her with continuous care. She lived another week. She was surrounded by her family, and she was cared for, and she was comfortable. Do you see that? See what miraculous things can occur in that space and how easy it is, these dynamics of anger. Uh, actually, I'm going to bring up, uh, I, we don't have time to include it today, in the Frankenstein lecture that we're going to do. Um, these, with the, with the dynamics, the archetypal dynamics in Frankenstein are what I find emerge in these encounters when you have um, uh, a dying person who is rejected, <laughs> right? Because that's what Frankenstein is about. So, so um, I encourage you to attend that work and unpack this more using that um, that story as a myth. Um, integration of shadow. Shadow is was one of Jung's hallmark uh, components of the psyche, but also theories. Very, very important. What is happening here is not only a recollection that that Vivian is going through a recollection of herself, a putting together of pieces of herself. But also she's integrating shadow. Who represents her shadow in this story? Dr. Posner. Dr. Posner is a perfect uh, depiction of what she has, she's identified with and now she's experiencing the shadow of that, because now she's in the place of being the patient. Do you see? So this integration process is going on, and it's depicted in um, in the film in these next couple of scenes. Okay. So. Okay. Before before I continue. Young doctor. Wait. Like the seniors. Sorry, Vivian. I'll give you another chance. Um, 
the scene before this, Dr. Posner comes in, he's checking the charts, checking the numbers, and she starts asking him questions about what he, why he was interested in oncology and, you know, uh, in cancer, and he, he's, and gets animated and passionate about why he's interested in cancer, but he hates the clinical piece of it because he's got to deal with human beings. And, he, and she, <laughs> so she's taking all this in. At the same time, you could see her really struggling with the fact that she's trying to make a connection with him. Remember, she's, she has a transference to him. She identified with him, and now she wants an emotional connection. And so this is the scene just after she, she tries to connect with him. So, the young doctor, like the senior scholar, prefers research to humanity. At the same time, the senior scholar, in her pathetic status simpering victim, wishes the young doctor would take more interest in personal contact. Now, I suppose we shall see how the senior scholar ruthlessly denied her simpering students the touch of human kindness she now seeks. How then would you characterize you? How would you characterize the animating force of this sonnet? Huh? In this sonnet, what is the <clears throat> what is the principal poetic device? I'll give you a hint. It has nothing to do with football. What propels this sonnet? You can come to this class prepared, or you can excuse yourself from this class, this department, and this university. Do not think for a moment that I will tolerate anything in between. Did I say? You are 19 years old. You are so young. You don't know a sonnet from a steak sandwich. By no means. To scan the line properly, we must take advantage of the contemporary flexibility in ION endings, as in expansion. The quatrain stands are two souls Therefore, which are one, though I must go, <coughs> endure not yet a breach, but an expansion, like gold to airy thinness beat. <coughs> Bear this in mind in your reading. That's all for today. extension on my paper. I'm really sorry. I know your policy. Do tell me. Your grandmother died. You knew? It was a guess. I have to go home. Do what you will, but the paper is due when it is due.
What is the word? I look back and I I see these scenes and I This next scene um, is the is the very next scene, but I want to um, introduce it. So this idea of shadow integration, this is a very painful process. It's depicted uh, in, in different ways in mythology, in alchemy, and um, Jung grabbed onto the images that are associated with transformation. And so there's di- different ways that we can look at this, but it's obvious that this is a painful process for her because what she's having to confront in her life, which I experience and often try to p- provide the, the space for, it's very difficult to look at your life at this at a stage at which you're also looking at the end of your life, um, to look at the things that um, you regret uh, the ways in which you weren't and you wish you were different. And it happens to all of us, right? Um, but it's easy to avoid those things. Um, a woman that I was seeing, um, her name was Rose, I saw for two and a half years while she um, had um, metastatic breast cancer and she was being treated with radiation for the bone metastases that she had rather successfully to keep her alive. She was given a six-month prognosis. And during that time, I saw her weekly um, during my clinical training program here at the Institute. And it was very meaningful because what transpired between us then became kind of the foundation for my analytic work to try and discover what I went through, <laughs> what happened, what she went through, what, we, what together we went through. And one of the things that I realized was how difficult and painful it was, and I couldn't appreciate it back then. Um, she, I mean, we talked about her life and the, the, the humiliating parts of her life that she shared with me um, were very, very painful for her. Because in the course of our work over two and a half years, she was beginning to realize, because she was pretty, she was pretty strong and compared, and, and like Vivian, in terms of her attitude, but it was one-sided. I mean, she thought she lived a life that was um, the way she wanted to live, and she lived it deliberately, and she had her husband there in the room. I was seeing her in the nursing home. She had her husband living there who uh, was hard of hearing and had uh, some dementia, so she was. her struggle and anger came from the fact that she was trying to have a, a relationship with him, and he was infantile in, in many ways and, and she couldn't do it um, but she was realizing things about her life in a similar fashion that was very painful for her and it was so painful for her at some point she told me that she could not continue talking about those things now this was late later on it would be a matter of a few weeks before she died after this but she, told, she couldn't do it anymore and I realized I had to let go of that as, as if I was driving this bus that, you know, she had to face all these things, you know, and that's, you know, 
I, it, this way I became an analyst to learn not to do that. Um, and but but she taught me something because she told me, and it was very as I look back, it was very meaningful. She said, you know, I really like seeing you, but if you continue in this vein, I have to stop seeing you. I mean, that's this two and a half years, and for her to have to say that means a lot. You know what I mean? Um, and shows me how painful this process was. And this is what uh, Vivian, what's being depicted here. Um, so now you see the, the the very next scene is what she experiences after this m this memory that she she calls up.
of the epithelial cells in my GI tract. I've been killed by the chemo. The cold popsicle feels good. It's something I can digest and it helps keep me hydrated. For your information.
probably always want to know more things. I'm a scholar. Or I was. And I had shoes. And I had eyebrows. Okay, well that's fine. You'll be full code. stops beating. Just let it stop. You sure? Yes. Okay. Okay, I'll get Kaliki in to give the order and then... Susie. Important shifts take place in that scene. Very, very important. The first one is that she, uh, her soliloquies, her relationship to the audience changes. She is defensive with, throughout the rest of the film, defensive with the, peop- the people she's interacting with, and she's very vulnerable with the audience. In this scene, she becomes defensive with the audience and she becomes vulnerable with Susie. Do you see that shift? Very, very important. The other shift is between the masculine and the feminine. She now opens up to the feminine. Um, And that's a significant shift in her story and I think in her personality. We have the sense that she grew up with a father. She had no relationship with a mother. We're not sure what her relationship was with women, if she idealized women or if she only idealized and identified with men. And that's not serving her in this case, right? That's not serving her in her experience. And part of the, the change that she's experienced is in her relationship to the feminine. Um, this is a quote that I've carried around with me for quite a while since I read uh, Lynn Cowan's book on masochism. And masochism, she uses to e- equate it to individuation. And she pulls out, she, and I cannot find this quote for the life of me if anybody has it in Nora Hall's works, um, but she pulled it out and she included it in her book. And this, the quote is, the way out of the labyrinth is to keep one hand on the cold, damp, shuddering wall of your humiliation. I am going to, in the interest of time, I'm going to skip over alchemy. I can go back to it if we have time left, but I don't think we will. Um, In a very important essay that I've gone back to now, 
multiple times is Jung's essay on the mass and the symbolism in the mass. Um, and when I go back to it, I learn something new each time. And this is, this is relevant to our story here. It is an act of self-recollection, a gathering together of what is scattered, of all things in us that have never properly related, and a coming to terms with oneself with a view to achieving full consciousness. Unconscious self-sacrifice is merely an accident, not a moral act. Self-recollection, however, is the hardest and most repellent thing there is for man who is predominantly unconscious. Human nature has an invincible dread of becoming more conscious of herself, of, her, of itself. Vivian is becoming conscious of herself. And it is very, very painful and humiliating for her. So what do you make of this scene? That in, in the scene after this, which I won't show in the interest of time, um, Vivian talks to the audience and says, what a maudlin display of emotion that she just experienced in that scene. Um, but she ends the scene saying, but there is, there is no getting away from it. This, this is the way it has to be. And what she's saying is this, this, this process of humiliation and integration, there's, there's no way around it. She has to suffer in this way, in this particular way. What about the symbol of the popsicle? What's popsicle represent? Always back to the childhood. Yes, childhood. And that would make Susie a mother figure in this scene. You see, that psychological transition away from the masculine away from reason, away from literature, away from done. We talked about this. We talked about that. Okay. Now for the next few scenes. Um, I'll let this scene speak for itself and we can talk about Oh, God. Oh, God. I'm in town visiting my great-grandson. Oh, 
who is celebrating his fifth birthday. I went to see you in your office and they directed me here. Oh, I'm walking all over town. I'd forgotten how early it gets chilly here. Thank <laughs> you. 
One of the images throughout this film, which Mike Nichols does in his films, um, everything that he, s- he sets up as his meaning, uh, is a picture of uh, a painting of Sebastian, Saint Sebastian. Um, I think, uh, and it's in many of the scenes. If if you watch this movie a few times, um, it's certainly an image they put in there of Vivian's journey of suffering. But I wanted to point out. In Lynn Cowan's book, there is a difference between uh, being a martyr uh, and being um, uh, a masochist or individuation. She draws a distinction. So I I wanted to point out the martyr avoids psychological movement by staying a victim. He uses his victim position to victimize others, rising above his suffering in an inflation balloon of moral superiority. Vivian's journey is one of uh, individuation. She did not turn away from her task. Right? She recollected herself. And she arrived at a place at the, at, at, in the end of that scene where she can be fully herself and be um, what she couldn't be with a mother because she didn't have one to be with um, Professor Ashford. And they're just a beautiful, beautiful scene. And I love the image of the shawl being pulled through her hand. And flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. You know where that's from? Shakespeare. <laughs> and she scolded her about that in an earlier scene. Okay. Um, do you want to see the last clip? Okay.
Brian, how are you feeling today? <laughs> Repeat of my dehydration totals. 2,000 and 30 out. Oh, oh that's it. Kidney's gone. Professor Brian? Highly unresponsive.
So you have um, well, let me let, let, you can leave with this quote from Young. This is uh, in Memory Street's Reflections. A man should be able to say he has done his best to form a conception of life after death, or to create some image of it, even if he must confess his failure. Not to have done so is a vital loss. In those two last scenes, you have the spirit of the times depicted in them. The force of the medical model, it's one-sidedness, it's inability to listen, <laughs> it's the force of it, um, doesn't allow space for anything else. And then the previous scene is what space, what can happen in the space that can be opened up once that space is allowed. Uh, that scene is, al- is, is almost archetypal in that that which Vivian needed came at the end of her life and slipped back into a collective unconscious at the end. Okay, thank you so much. I'm sorry I, put, I went longer. <laughs> but thank you for being here. is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org. Thank you to our 2019 supporter-level donors, Bill Alexi, Usha and Ashok Beatty, Circle Center Yoga, Arlo and Rena Kampan, Eric Cooper and Judith Cooper, Lorna Crowell, D. Scott Dayton, George J. Didier, The Cole Family Foundation, Ramakrishnan and Full Bloom Lotus, Suzanne G. Rosenthal, Deborah Stutzman, Deborah Tobin, Alexander Wayne and Lynn Kopp, and Gerald Weiner. If you would like to support this podcast, just go to youngchicago.org slash give.